Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Bug Eye's Rock Pop Rambles. I'm your host, Angela Martin from the band Bug Eye and with me as co-host extraordinaire this week is dun 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 Kerry Smith. Also... I like that. Co-host extraordinaire. Yeah. I'll I thought I'd that. be kind to you. Normally I just like take the piss out of you so I just thought I'd actually say something. I know, it's rare. I was like, wow, positive, positive vibes Yeah, I mean, well, just for the start of the show. Just for the start. There's plenty of time. <laughs> we'll start high well, and then we'll just ex- Exactly, exactly. I don't know how long I can keep up being kind. So... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll keep a timer on it. Let's see how long you last before the first insult. Uh, you also need to keep track on how many times I say the word suppose. Because this is suppose, it's become, yes, because since because that was mentioned before it excessively. It's become it's become a real problem. It's for me. And do you not find that once you're aware of it, it just becomes even worse? And like you do it even more and you can't. Exactly. Stop Instead about of it. me saying, um, I just go, suppose. <laughs> So yeah, it's that word has to be deleted. I might even get some hypnotherapy to, to yeah, <laughs> delete it should, to from my brain. But um, <laughs> how are you anyway? Because I haven't spoken to you since yesterday. <laughs> I know it's been forever. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm doing all right. I'm doing pretty good. I'm. Uh, it's just been a while since I've done one of these. I don't know if I've done one since I've been back teaching in schools, back off of furlough finally. Um. So yeah, it's kind of weird, but also not weird at all. Being back in schools, you sort of fall back into it quite quickly with, you know, extra restrictions and distancing and cleaning and all these things. Um, But yeah, just been getting back into a bit more normal life, I suppose, in a way. What about you? How have you been? been? I've been fine. I've just been really, really busy. And I feel like I haven't taken full advantage of the fact that, you know, that we could go out and do things and see people. I've been kind of, you know, keeping it to a minimum still and then just about to ramp up going out and book some gig tickets and then the news of... Yeah, exactly, tier two. But you know what? It is It yeah. is what it is and, uh, yeah. Yeah, I've sort of got to the point where I just feel I don't know you just sort of take it as it comes don't you day by day yeah. and get on with it there's not much else you no can do. exactly but I mean you're you're all gearing up for half term I mean you're just back at work and then you're skiving off again aren't you for half term I know that's the amazing thing about working in off school. to the sunshine though <laughs> not just to be sticking like a fake zoom background on on the call you're actually going no, I will, somewhere hopefully if nothing goes wrong between now and then I will hopefully be on a beach in Antigua sipping on rum for a nice week in the sun yeah. which I'm quite excited about and there might be lockdown sort of like you know you won't be able to fly back and you'll be stuck be trapped, on the beach trapped in Antigua on the beach worst place yeah. you won't have anything to do I'll just give you loads of podcast research to do for us <laughs> <laughs> just be like your your beach side set. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like a bad job to me Kerry I don't know what you're moaning I'm, about I'm not against it <laughs> so um, on this week's show 
um, we're going to be talking about a couple of stellar albums from the year 1994, which ties in nicely with this week's special guest, who has been a music journalist for 20 years for the likes of Kerrang, Classic Rock, Metal Hammer, to name but a few. And now he's just released his first ever book called So Much for the 30 Year Plan, which is an authorised biography of the rock band Therapy. It's the one, the only Simon Young. Hello, Simon. Woo! I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having us on the podcast. No, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and for writing such an amazing book. Um, the, the check cleared then. Yeah. <laughs> 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 thank you. <laughs> no, seriously, it's, it's a really, really great, great book. Um, when I heard it was coming out, I pre-ordered it. And I think I think your Thank publicist you. said then offered me a free copy later. It was like, damn, I already bought it. But um, <laughs> no, it's a really really good book and about a fantastic band who who you know it was it was a really important record to me back in 1994. Which which was the that album Trouble Gum when that came out in 1994. Yeah, uh, was yeah was was my entry into the world of of uh, therapy you know obviously they've done previous stuff but this was when I'd first heard of them and then really got into the band and then obviously you know with your book so many fantastic stories in there and just yeah I think it's probably one of the quickest biography reads I've ever done I think I read that back to back in three days so a lot of yeah. people have said they were able to read it quickly yeah so really good Really good. It was good that it was only five words on each page. I'm only joking, obviously. <laughs> it I was, was going to say, book. I'm not sure if you take that as a, I mean, it's obviously a compliment, but I, it's one of those things that sounds like, is that a compliment or not? No, no, no. I just, I just couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it down. We'll, we'll get more into that um, in, in a little bit. But um, how's, how's life been for you in C19? Um, all right. It's because uh, I'm freelance anyway, so yeah. my going out... You know, I kind of live in the office unless I'm doing a school run yeah. or a supermarket run. So I've, I'm used to it. So it's uh, I, I just get the feeling it's never going to end now. I know it kind of does does yeah. feel like that. It's dragging on now. Yeah, I thought it'd be done and dusted by May, <laughs> but that was the optimist in me. I think I was going to say I think that was wishful thinking. Yeah. I sort of knew that it was going to go on for you know a long time, but yeah, it's really starting to feel yeah. like will it ever end now? But it's also yeah. It, yeah. But, you know, Popping a mask on's no no big effort. No, that's fine. I'm not Ian Brown. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get stuck into your book, uh, I just just want to say so this week's stories. Obviously, I've mentioned we're going to be doing um, the tale of two albums from 1994. But we also have um, new music that we bring to the show each week. And this week, I'm going to play the new one by Tiger Mimic, which is called King of the Machines. And Kerry, what have you brought along? I have brought along the new single by Scarlet, which is called Bring Me Damn Down. Damn you. That was on my list to contact them to play that in next week's show. Well, you just need to be quicker off the mark, <sighs> don't you? Exactly. Anyway, so shall we kick off with King of the Machines? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> He 
is on such a clever disguise But it's easy to tell by his desperate eyes Even he knows it's just a matter of time I'll stand, I'll stand my ground I'll run, I'll hunt you down I speak, I speak too soon I think out loud I shout, I shout it out Won't make, won't make The things he wants to hear But accolades and glasses Clinking cheers For filtering out All those tedious tears I'll stand, I'll stand my Tiger Mimic. Um, I suppose all I can say about that is fat guitar hooks backed with lush layers, and I think it's got really quite dynamic sections to it. I think that's the same with all of their songs. That you know they they do have sort of traditional sort of structures going on within there, but so much other stuff sort of weaving in and out. And uh, yeah, I just I really love it. I love the two vocal parts and just some of it just sounds a little unhinged that makes sense it's got that kind of chaotic but tight feel to it but just yeah a little bit bit of edge I know what you mean yeah yeah I know what you mean I I think um that's what I always like like about their stuff is you sort of you never quite know where it's gonna go and it always sort of 
takes a turn somewhere that does something that you didn't quite expect but is like kind of genius um and for me what really stands out for me about this song is the chorus I think I just remember when I first heard it um I think that chorus just really grabs you straight away um and kind of sucks you in and then yeah the song takes you on this slightly bizarre journey from there really but in a good way and a bit bit (laughs) of a political edge to it they're releasing it yep. on the eve of the uh, US elections, so it'll be out on a on on a Monday rather than traditional Fridays of releases. So second of November, that one will come out. Uh, but do follow them on social media and keep an eye out for all of the great reviews. I'm sure this single's going to to get. It just premiered on BBC Introducing, and I believe they've got some some big plays coming up on like Radio X and and stuff like that so definitely ones to watch so we do have a guest with us this evening Simon Young who has literally just put out his first book um, but he's quite a skilled writer who's been writing for a number of years for various music publications and been submerged in the world of music for for quite some time so uh so this is your first ever book and like i mentioned before first book yeah yeah it's it's a great read as i said i'm a therapy fan and i really really enjoyed digging into the the stories that's great yeah (laughs) Yeah, good bit of asmr for the listeners that's the whole book being flicked through right now so so you uh, know it's a real book and not just a one pager yeah (laughs) (laughs) postcard I think it was a year this week that I started work on it and uh, it started with um, I wanted to do a book on uh, Infernal Love by Therapy for the 33 and a third book series so I contacted the band because I'd known them for years and said is it cool with you if I do it and they were up for it and suggested doing fresh interviews for it so it could be as good as possible and um, it was a few weeks later Andy Kens the front man said uh, we were talking about it and you just want to do the whole story for us instead and because we want to have a biography to mark the 30th anniversary and um we met up in london in august and, and it was sort of september i started doing initial interviews and um jawbone press uh contacted and they were interested but wanted a sample chapter so i did infernal love um which took far longer than it should have done because i you know it, it was such a different discipline to writing a feature for a magazine and stuff. Yeah. But uh, they were into it and um, I had to get it all done by March 31st. And I thought, as soon as March 31st, going to send the book in and go for a big pint with some friends and, and my wife to celebrate. Then I couldn't because of the lockdown. Aww. Well, so I suppose I suppose that just completely changed how people would promote, how people promote books, right? Some people do book tours or signings in bookshops and stuff like that. So I suppose all of that stuff goes out the window, really, doesn't it? It's, yeah. Uh... We had a virtual book launch. Uh, we recorded like a, a Zoom chat and put yeah. it on their YouTube channel. And it was good. It was good laugh. Oh, we'll have to we'll have to put a, we'll have to put a link to that in our in our show notes so people can go. And yeah, have it was a... fun because it was going to come out during the second part of their thirtieth anniversary tour, and I was going to probably yeah. go out to a few dates and see the book fly off the merch table but it, you know very quickly it it seemed that it wasn't going to happen this year so yeah. they uh they took a, a load off the publish and did some signed pre-orders yeah. and stuff and uh they they sold all theirs out and amazon sold out on the day it was released so it's yeah i think the second print's in now so that's pretty incredible though that's i was very happy and surprised it was uh <laughs> But um, the band are doing a second 
uh, signing of the book. Yeah. So, yeah, I think people have got till the end of October uh, to put their orders in. So get them in, get them in. It's, it's got a very, because uh, their mascot's called Gemmel, yeah. the triangular uh, sort of man <laughs> that's on a lot of their T-shirts. And it's it's uh, COVID-themed. It's got a mask on and Beautiful. It's fitting in with 2020 <laughs> quite well. Love it. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I really honestly do think that um, anyone who is a music fan and even more so anyone that's in a band should definitely read this book. I mean, I'm a fan of therapy, but even if you're not, I think that there is a lot to get from this book. I mean, from the word go, I really sort of loved the level of detail from them starting out. And I think in some biographies and things, that that kind of bit can be like romanticised a little bit and glossed over where this really does go into a lot of detail and it's it's all of all of the, the graft that went into it the fact that even when they had record deals they weren't earning any money they were studying and they still had to hold down jobs even though they're being asked to go and play in America and they had to pass up opportunities and and all of I don't know there's it's just from being in a band and stuff like that you really feel all of those those stories and can really relate to them um and also, you know, from from the point of when they got their major record deal and the backlash against it, and just I suppose there's a lot of reality in there rather than just all of the glory. And I think it just makes it such a compelling read because it is so frank and honest. But you you grew up in Newcastle, didn't you? Well, yeah. So so I lived in Jarrow until I was eighty. I was born in Newcastle General, which is. Uh, I looked up, it was less than a mile from St. James's Park, so I'm uh, very proud of the fact I'm <laughs> as close to Newcastle United as this can be. So important. And, um, so I grew up in Jarrow in a, a estate called Felgate, and um, the 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 music scene was, from a distance, looked excellent, but I was very young-looking and couldn't get a, a convincing fake ID, so... I remember there was one time in uh, IT, half of my friends came in wearing um, Nirvana, and this was against school uniform policy. They were wearing like uh, Nirvana t-shirts or Shona Knife t-shirts because they both played at the Riverside the night before, and I was just, I just, it wasn't even worth going because there was no way I was getting into yeah. the Riverside club. Um, so I had to make do with like massive rock spectaculars like Iron Maiden, which I was perfectly fine with. Cause I love, I <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I couldn't really get to the the gigs because I looked too young. Like I didn't go to a pub until three months before my eighteenth birthday. So I was, oh, all my friends you. had tales of seeing, you know, X, Y, and Z at the Mayfair or, you know, so and so at the too, Riverside. Too, too baby faced to get in. I I was I, it was terrible. Even even for tears after I was regularly carded and. <laughs> Many disputes with Dorman, but um, but it was when I went to London, uh, for university that I I I just saw as many gigs as I could. I was making up for lost time. Yeah, no, fair enough. So, how did you discover music in Newcastle back back in the day, like before before the internet and, and things like this, and not being able to go to like a local pub and stuff like that? What was your core sort yeah. of source of supply for your music um, fix? I I was an only well I still am uh, an only child and uh, it was stuff like Top of the Pops and the the chart show where you'd uh, 
because I, I didn't start off with rock. It was like I had uh, Bross's Push album, uh, Christian's self-titled album, and Wet Wet Wet's popped in, sold out on vinyl. A brave man for so, admitting such things. Thank you. Well, the, the first the first tape I bought was I must have been about ten. Was Cameo's Word Up on cassette. Oh, brilliant! Some Amazing vouchers. Um, but I had like copies of Queen and stuff like that. But my dad was uh, very into his sort of fifties stuff. So it'd be like Buddy Holly. Um, I've got my Buddy Holly records here, and uh, like Eddie Cochran and Little Richard and Chuck Berry and. So that that but that's kind of bled into what I liked later on. Um but then we moved house onto the edge of state and I saw Eric B and Rakim do uh paid in full on top of the pops and uh, I bought that seven inch and then um I bought those the the unholy trinity of vinyl which I mentioned earlier. <laughs> then um I saw Iron Maiden on top of the pops in uh it must have been March eighty eight and that completely changed my world because it I, I just sat in uh, a friend called Paul Nichols' house and s- basically sat in his room until I'd taped every Iron Maiden album he'd had onto a bag of cassettes. <laughs> and, um, and uh, but his brother <laughs> uh, had the uh, Guns N' Roses album uh, with the uh, controversial artwork, mm-hmm. which was weird to look at it when you considered that he had Portland Bill wallpaper uh in in his bedroom so it's like the you know polar opposites of art um but going back to the question sorry see i haven't had a chance to chat about iron maiden that much during lockdown um, like any opportunity you get yeah. straight into it so uh, yeah, that was that was it really just um uh a, f- uh, a friend of my mum's uh who worked at the hospital with her took me to see um iron maiden at whitley bay ice rink later that year and um, I got into Metallica that year and just read the credits on all the album sleeves and made a list of the bands they thanked and just did a lot of wheeling, dealing uh, with friends and secondhand record shops. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the albums I had originally uh, kind of would be traded in to find something new because the internet was decades away. <laughs> but I, I just think, you know, it... Music was less throwaway back there, back in the good old days. But you had to put so mm. much effort into discovering things. I mean, how many of us now think about record sleeve notes and checking out the bands that are thanked and all of that? You've just yeah. got like Spotify or, or whatever. I think there's there's a joy of really discovering a gem in some kind of you know detective sort of way of uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you bought a record, you would listen to it until you liked it. That's that's true. That's true. That <laughs> yeah, is so you spent true. The money, right? Yeah. You invested. That that is yeah. so true. It's like yeah, I think I had the rule of five. If I'd listened to it five times and I was still not like feeling it, that's it. It'd be going going to some sort of exchange thing, or wrap it up and give it to someone as a present. Yeah, <laughs> I tell you what though, you could pretty much take any record back to HMV and say it was for a birthday present, and that is they so would let true. you swap it. You didn't even have to have a receipt. It just yeah. It was amazing. That's how I found out about a lot of bands because they had an amazing record section, and you could just I would, I remember feeling the adrenaline in you and your pulse would quicken as you approach the counter, and you'd have to have a straight face and have you. St- <laughs> it was it became it was like a drug for a twelve year old. It was amazing. I love it. Yeah. Until until very recently. Um, I was doing this thing quite regularly of going into like charity shops or if there were like CD shops that have like 
five CDs for a pound or anything of like really random CDs and just trying to pick like five completely random things that I'd never heard of before um and then taking them home and, and listening to them and discovering that almost all of them were terrible <laughs> um, any were good occasionally finding some gems well this one debatable as to what you want whether it's really a gem or not but um I'm trying to remember exactly what they were called I think they were called um lesbian fist magnet <laughs> <laughs> it was a band that I discovered um from thing that was like this was in Montreal um and uh yeah they were just some sort of um punk band and uh they had songs that were called things like rape the rapist <laughs> um and yeah it was quite something but yeah. I listened to that album quite a lot I've got into it eventually <laughs> well done I think wow. I think you went on discovering the best named band um in, in a second <laughs> Yeah, when you said they second hand shop, I just brilliant. had had like this vision of like the Sue Ryder shop in Canning Town that was just full of like little old ladies' clothes and things that no one is ever really going to buy. And then there's this this uh yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. It was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I've just remembered that when I was at, I went to Sixth Form College in South Shields and um there was a group of lads who I got to be friends with and they all had like misfits t-shirts on pretty much every day. And it was through them that I kind of got into like all the alternative tentacles kind of bands and, yeah. uh, and stuff like that. I've just remembered, I just, I've got a vivid picture of seeing them all standing on the stairs. Like they were in freaks and geeks or something as <laughs> yeah. the gang, but they're all really <laughs> sweet people, but they just love Danzig and misfits. And you, you can't not see a, Danzig t-shirt and not want to find out more basically yeah it's true it's yeah. true you can't see a cd by a band called lesbian fist magnet and not buy it not at all <laughs> <laughs> go back to your book it talks a lot about like that there's just such amazing insights into the kind of band dynamics and the sort of trouble that was brewing under the surface from sort of a bit early on with things like drinking and infighting. Um, was was that something that people in music journalism were aware of at the time or did they hide that quite well when that started to...? Because uh, it was a few years after, like, because I'd joined the Kerrang! about five years later. But going through the press clippings and stuff, five viewing the original drummer barely said a word if he was there or wasn't involved in the interviews at all I just don't think it was his thing so you never really got a, a taste of the stuff that I'd later find out you know well that's 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 what I was wondering because I just in the book yeah because I was just like totally not aware of, of any of that at all I just didn't know if I was just like really rubbish at reading things about pants I like so of course with writing the book you had access to to everything all the unrestricted kind of archives well you had unrestricted access to the archives, I should say. Yeah. Were there any kind of surprise gems that you discovered when you were delving through all of that and was like, that's amazing? Um, it was the first one was a chat with Michael, the bassist, where he said he'd, he'd quit very briefly uh, before Infernal Love after an enemy party. He was just, I think there's the stress of following up Troublegum had got to him and I was amazed because I didn't know like I went in thinking I knew a fair bit about therapy but I had no idea about that and it was he, he was only 
uh, he went home and was talked out of it and he came straight back and it was red faces all around, you know, yeah. just cause he, he, I don't think he, he meant it, but he was just like stressed about the, the situation because yeah. I think he had to go in and, you know, it was a, a different way of working in the studio, I think maybe because of the new material and stuff. And I think he was just worried about it, but that really knocked me sideways because I thought, you know, Michael's the sort of the rock of the band and, you know, Andy's, uh, you know, the lyricist and everything. Yeah. But I didn't think Michael would have done anything like that. But it, he, he he explains in the book it was it was just for a very mm-hmm. brief period that he was just unsure of his place in the, the band. Gosh. And the second one was uh, the during Infernal Love when they were cl- clearly having <laughs> a meltdown in the studio. They found time to record ambient sounds of the wild fowl and uh, we're going to make a concept album called Duck Symphony. <laughs> 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 so it, you just read about like how Andy's barely sleeping for six weeks and just to relax they go out and record ducks and geese quacking in the grounds of the studio as you do uh, anyway so 1994 which I've, I've mentioned is, is kind of a, the focus year of the podcast and that was the year that Trouble Gum hit the shelves of the music stores it was the album that introduced me to therapy and I fell in love with the album um but to be honest, it was a pretty shit hot year for music anyway. Um, I mean, my my birthday list, Christmas list, pocket money, blank cassettes, everything was just focused on music. That was just it there was there was too much coming out. I couldn't, you know, as a as a teenager, I could just couldn't get enough of it in. I was even doing things like recording things off the radio on cassettes and trying to hit stop before the ads kicked in and, and stuff like that. A lot of really shit sounding mixtapes were made then but um <laughs> the UK hadn't seen such a you know from the research of this apparently the UK hadn't seen such a rich year in music since 1983 which was another incredible year for music where you just saw huge albums coming out but loads of debuts of of artists and bands that would go on to be absolute huge legends like Madonna for example and um, yeah I think it was the the year as well that the Eurythmics, Mix. Um, I think it was their second album with Love Is a Stranger and uh, Sweet Dreams. That 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 really sort of propelled their career. So that was nineteen eighty three, but nineteen ninety four was was seen as just like a real turning point, apparently in music. Uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, just about music in nineteen ninety four. The world looked like this in nineteen ninety four. In Gloucester, local police began excavations at 25 Cromwell Street. Whose house was that? Um, uh, Fred West. It was indeed. You get a point. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And for those who, and I can't believe I'm about to explain this, I'm sure you know, suspect of multiple murders, found guilty of multiple murders, along with his wife, Rose West. West, anyway. Um... Also in 1994, the People's Republic of China get their first connection to the internet. But the Channel Tunnel opened, uh, which took 15,000 workers over seven years to complete that bad boy. And that opened um, in that year. And it would basically cut the travel time, enabling passengers to travel between two countries in 35 minutes. Not anymore. Not, no, no. <laughs> sadly not, no. <laughs> What do you think happened 
that year that was really a landmark thing for the Church of England? Women priests. Well done. You get another point, my son. <laughs> and also... So many points. Two points, well, two points. For my, for my failure on this part of the podcast, I'm going to argue that I was two in 1994, and that is why I don't know the answer to any of these questions. <laughs> you don't know history, Kerry. You don't know about women's history and rights. Gosh, girl. Uh, <laughs> you didn't know I that about the Church of England. Shame on you. Um, Camelot... The consortium wins the contract to run the UK's first national lottery. So, which would then see. I remember yeah. sitting watching that, thinking, "I'm going to win it." Oh, I still, I still <laughs> so do. So disappointed when I didn't win the first one. I still do. I still do. This is the thing, occasionally, and it's always when I kind of, you know, when I'm feeling like really pissed off, and I'm like, "Right, okay, I just need, I just need like a cash injection right now. I'm going to go and buy a lottery ticket, and I'm going to win." Um, but, but yeah, and people used to sit and watch it. You used to watch the bloody lottery show. Like, why? To see, like, yeah. was it Dale Winton hosted it? Or was, did he come later? I can't even remember. But, um, but yeah, that actually turned 73% of the population, this is still the true fact today, into gamblers. 73% of the population play the, the national lottery. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Now you can take that fact with you and do something with it, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, a lot of other stuff happened, which I'm sure you could just Google like I did, 1994, <laughs> and look at Wikipedia. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like I said, it was a tremendous year in music. Some of the albums that came out, for example, like Definitely Maybe by Oasis, Nirvana Unplugged in New York, Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails came out. Whole live through this and the list goes on and on. There was just so many incredible, incredible albums. Um, but I've picked an album and Kerry's picked an album that we're going to tell you about briefly this evening. I think mine's going to be really quite brief. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but you always say that. No, 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 no. <laughs> I really, I really think I made a good choice to limit my chat, mm-hmm. but a bad choice for me because there wasn't anything really juicy to to dig well, in. I will see. Um, <laughs> so do you want to kick off Kerry and tell us about your album you picked I am going to talk about the album Dookie by Green Day um, so Dookie was Green Day's third studio album it was released on 1st of February 1994 um, on Reprise Records um, and it was their first album on a major label Um, Their first two albums had been uh, released on the independent label Lookout Records. Um, And with it being their first album on a major label and then coming from the sort of underground punk scene, they were inevitably sort of rejected and labelled as sellouts um, for signing to the major label. Um, And even to the extent that um, the club that they, in California, that they sort of used to play at, Gilman, um, which was famous for being a springboard for a lot of the 90s punk bands um, like them and Operation Ivy, Rancid and The Offspring um, actually banned them from entering the club after they signed to a major label, apparently. That's... Don't mess around. Sorry, I just realised I was on mute. I was like, what? That's just so <laughs> stupid, isn't it? It's so stupid. I mean, stupid. that is a Wikipedia fact. So, you know, we'll take it with a grain of salt. But still, if that's true, that's mental. To go as far as to be like, you literally cannot come into the club anymore. Like, you're literally kicked out of the club. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, so the album, um, 
you know, it was their third album, their first major label album, and it was the one that sort of brought them mainstream success. Um, and yeah, it won a Grammy Award um, for Best Alternative Album in 1995 um, and was a worldwide success charting in seven countries. Um, the album is seen as being really important, not only because it sort of brought Green Day um, mainstream success, but it's also seen as the album that sort of opened the door um, and brought punk rock sort of overground and into the mainstream for the first time, especially in the US. Um, it had been, you know, a bit more successful in the UK with the Sex Pistols and so on, but it was really the, the first time in the US that punk came into the mainstream um, and it opened the doors for bands like Blink-182, The Offspring, Rancid, Sum 41 and so many others that sort of came after them. Um, I think one of the reasons that it was able to do that was it's a bit more melodic than sort of the punk that had been before in the US, right? Where you had stuff like Black Flag that was sort of never going to be mainstream in the same sort of way, but um, the songs on Dookie were a lot more radio friendly. Um, and it was produced um, by Rob Cavallo, who um, is himself as a producer, a multiple Grammy Award winner, who's worked with countless bands, um, in a similar vein to Green Day, like Linkin Park, My Chemical Romance, um, but also like Eric Clapton, Dave Matthews Band, um, and just so many amazing artists. So I think that he also played a big role in the album's success. So that's sort of like a summary of why that album was important um, that year. And um, it seems like a year that did a lot of had a lot of albums that like brought a new genre to the fore, right? And brought like a new genre into the mainstream, um, like that did for for, for punk. Um, so I'm gonna go with a few sort of random facts about it now, some of which I may ask you as questions. Um, so do you happen to know um what the band originally wanted to call the album? No, I don't. So um they originally wanted to call it Liquid Dookie. Ooh. <laughs> because uh, the reason behind the title Dookie at all um, was uh, related to their experiences of getting the shits on tour due to their <laughs> terrible diets. <laughs> Which again, when you were talking about um, therapy and, you know, not being able to afford to eat and stuff, I was thinking, I think it's like all coming from the same sort of place, right? And the same story of starting out as a band. Um so yeah, so they wanted to call it Liquid Dookie, but um, their label decided that that was a little bit too gross. Um, and so they uh, compromised with just Dookie, which uh, the band felt still got the point across and the, the label could accept. Um, do So you know that everyone sort of knows the album artwork, yeah. right? For Dookie, yeah. Hymns artwork. Do you happen to know where any of sort of the hidden Easter eggs are um, in that artwork? No idea. And there was like a UFO and chimps and stuff. Well, there's loads. There's loads of stuff in there because it's like a whole like collage sort of vibe, isn't it? Um, and a lot of it is sort of stuff that's specific to um, sort of California, um, and the scene that they were a part of. So, um, so the art was by a, an artist called. I'm not sure how to say his name, whether it's like Richie Butcher, but that sounds like an East End name. 
I'm like, he's American. That's probably not it. <laughs> but um, Richie Butcher, Richie Boucher, something like that. I'm not sure. Um, and um, so first and foremost, it was sort of a nod to their Bay Area roots. Um, the setting is modeled off of Berkeley's Telegraph Avenue. And it depicts lots of sort of people, char- like local characters from the area that are like personal to them, I suppose. But there ah, are a few. You just said it. What? The S word. <laughs> <laughs> it's contagious. It's like a disease. It's going to be the new COVID. Right. So um, basically there are a few nods to like some of their um, musical influences in there. So on the left, there's a sort of robe character that looks a bit like the Mona Lisa. And that is the woman from the cover of the first Black Sabbath album um, that's sort of hidden in there. And then on the right-hand side, I, well, I think this is it, because um, there's a quote from Billy Joe saying that the uh, ACDC guitarist Angus Young is in there somewhere. And I think that I spot Angus Young kind of on the right-hand side. He's like on top of a, a building on the right-hand side. Um, and then the last one. So on the original back cover um, of the album, it featured a picture of a plush toy version of Sesame Street's Ernie. Mm. But the image was later removed um, because of the fear of the po- a possible lawsuit from Sesame Street. And also they were worried it may spark confusion over whether or not the album was for children. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't want to look like it was being marketed uh, to children because it's not a particularly child-friendly <laughs> album. <No>. Um, <laughs> so um, the album was most is mostly written um, by frontman Billy Joe Armstrong and the album is mostly based around his personal experiences with themes such as boredom, anxiety, relationships and sexuality. Um, it was promoted with five singles, which is quite a lot of singles for one album. Um, and the five singles were Longview, Basket Case, Welcome to Paradise, When I Come Around and She. Yeah. Um, I think it's very much like one of those albums that's you can legitimately say is kind of all killer. No yeah, killer, def- do you know what definitely, I mean? Like if they, especially considering they got five singles out of it. So I just wanted to pick a few of those singles um, to chat about a little bit. Um, so Longview was their first major hit single that they that they had at all. Um, do you know what Longview is about? Um I'm trying to think of the lyrics right now. Simon does. Simon's giving me a smile. Like he knows what it is and he doesn't want to say it. (laughs) He doesn't want to say the word on a podcast. (laughs) Uh, Alone time. (laughs) (laughs) It's about masturbation. (laughs) Um, And um, in fact, there are a lot of uh, hit songs about masturbation. And I was thinking that we should do a whole podcast episode about of songs about masturbation. <laughs> that's that's just, quite a fun theme. Yeah, we should do that. So I'm putting that out there. I'm writing for a that later one down. Um, and also interesting about Longview uh, is that uh, Mike Dent, the bass player, wrote the. It's a very sort of signature bass line on there, and he wrote it while on acid. Ah, I didn't know. Random fact. Um, so kind of the hit, obviously the hit single Basket Case, which I suppose is one of their most famous yeah. songs ever that everyone still knows and everyone plays in cover bands and all that sort of stuff, um, was uh, also inspired by his um, personal experiences um, and deals with his sort of anxiety ta- attacks and feelings of going crazy prior to being diagnosed with a panic disorder. Um, he also uses several of the song. Uh, several songs on the album to express his own sexual confusion um, and sort of ex- his exploration of bisexuality at the time. 
Um, so in the third verse of, of Basket Case, he changes the gender of the whore, which was supposed to be a way of challenging not only himself, but also the listener, which is something I'd never quite picked up on before. No, I don't think I had either. Um, so the other, the last single I wanted to talk about a little bit was She, um, which was apparently written by Armstrong about a former girlfriend who showed him a feminist poem with the same title. Um, and then in return, he wrote the lyrics of She and showed them to her. I couldn't find what the poem is, though. I kind of wanted to bring this up just to see if anyone who listens to this podcast could find out what the feminist poem is that it's based on. The song that it always makes me think of, and I was trying to figure out if there was a connection, but I don't think there is, is Dancing Barefoot by Patti Smith, um, which opens with, you know, she is benediction, she is addicted to thee, like that whole thing. It says she a lot in it. So, I don't know. So anyway, I, I've always wondered. just because huh? the word she. Not just because of the word she. <laughs> just like, I don't know. There's like a vibe to it and like there's something about it that I wondered yeah, if there was no, a connection, but I don't think there is. All right. Last last one I've got. So this is a guessing question. Okay. So there is a, a very hugely famous female pop star who claims that Dookie was the first album she ever bought. So I've got a quote by her and I want you to tell me who you think said it okay. and who it is. Okay. So the quote is, I remember when I bought Green Day's Dookie, I just wanted to lick the pages from the booklet. That particular album, I mean, it, it's iconic. Who do you think said that? Uh, does she have green hair? No. Oh, I was going to say Billie Eilish. No, not Billie Eilish. That's a good guess, though. Uh, oh, I don't know. I want to say... Oh, so- Miley Cyrus. No, not Miley Cyrus. Uh, One more guess. Patti Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yes, the answer's Patti Smith. No, Lady Gaga, apparently. Yeah. You know what? I was actually going to say that, Kerry. Yeah, yeah, of course you are. <laughs> Of course you are. <laughs> Nothing but lies. Um, yeah, apparently Lady Gaga claims that Dookie was the first album she ever bought. And um, yeah, she just wanted to lick all the pages from the booklet for some reason. I'm not sure that's why. I don't I don't know. I don't know that's why why you would say that, but sure. So yeah, so that was my little exploration uh, into Dookie. Well done. So you have some new music for us as well. Oh, I do. Sweet. Yeah, sorry. I thought I was done. I was ready to chill out then. <laughs> Back, crack open a bit. Nope. I do. So um, I have got um, the new single um, from Scarlet, which just came out on the 9th of October. It is called Bring Me Down. Um, Four-piece female-led um, kind of grunge pop alt-rock band. It is about constantly being treated like a mug, being underestimated and held back by people that should be working with you. It's about not being taken seriously, realising it and setting yourself free. It's about an escape and gaining the ability to say no more and promise yourself that you'll never be brought down or made to feel worthless and insignificant again. Okay, let's listen to it.
that was Bring Me Down um, by Scarlett. Big fan. So if you get a chance to see Scarlett live ever in the future, um, please do go and see them because they're they're cracking live as well. I've seen them a few times now. So um, get a ticket uh, when things calm down a little bit. Um, well, things I'm... are really calming down, aren't they? And getting a bit boring. And sort of, you know, when we're <laughs> unleashed well, and go crazy. We're we're supposed to be playing a festival with them next year if it goes ahead, but it's already been postponed twice. So we'll see. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The one by Kick Out the Jams and Rota, the, the Camden Calling. Yeah, one. Camden yeah, Calling. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's been moved to June. I can't even remember anymore. No, I don't know when anything is anymore. Well, I know is I was supposed to go and see Crosswires and the Novus next week, and. That's I don't think that's a reality of anything that's gonna happen really, um, but yeah. So we've been talking about albums from 1994, and we have a guest on the show, which is Simon Young, who's just written a fantastic book about therapy. So we'll dig into a little bit more of that if you don't mind, Simon. No problem. So, being a fan of therapy, do you have a favourite song, and if so, why? I've got favourite songs from different periods of their career. Um, obviously, Teeth Grinder is in it, it's even now <clears throat> when they play it live. Uh, it was the last gig I, I saw. Actually, it was at the Forum last October. Um, it just it's just excellent. Everything about it, the, the rhythms, the guitar lines, the bass is just unrelenting. It's excellent. But there's stuff like um, Only Crying Lonely, yeah. which uh, I mentioned my dad's record collection uh, had a very 50s feel to it. Yeah. And uh, I think it's the sort of thing my dad would have uh, enjoyed because uh, Andy sort of wrote it in a kind of Roy Orbison kind of vein. And st- uh, But there's stuff on uh, Cleave, like record like Beckett. It yeah. just came out the gates with like that song on the album. It's fantastic. So I don't... I, I'm really hard pushed to pick a, a definitive therapy track because there's just because I've been such a fan of this for over 25 years. It's I've I've got a lot of memories pinned to various albums for various reasons. So sorry. <laughs> if I was to ever write a biography, I know that I would go down so many rabbit holes. I'd get lost and never be found again. <laughs> to, to, you know, just to get to the point. How on earth did you manage to to kind of stay focused and get structure to to that book? Because like I said, there's so much detail in there. And you say that one of my questions was going to be, how long did it take you to write? But it sounds like it was like a kind of year. Um, well, how on, sitting yeah. down to do it was three months. Jesus Christ, three months. I, I had to because the publisher said if they want it released in September to coincide with the tour, yeah. you're going to have to get it into us by the end of March at the latest. How? How and, do you and do that? And this was in uh, late October, November. And I was like, I've just started interviewing them. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But uh, that, that was, that's what helped me focus was just that deadline. But I think I would have done the book this, exactly the same way if I'd had a year to do it. I think having a year to do it was it wouldn't have given me any it wouldn't have made any difference to the story because it is what it is. So were you one of I those think, people at uni that um 
basically just turned out bits of work the night before and well, I, I did my up. dissertation in one day. Oh, I knew what? it! Knew it. <laughs> so I was Mad. used to it. Yeah, I missed helmeted the uh, mean fiddler, uh, the well, the LA two, so I could do my David Cronenberg three thousand. It was only three thousand <laughs> words, but I had to do a, a David Cronenberg body horror thing for my dissertation, <laughs> and uh, I'd basically sat up and had about twelve pints of coffee and yeah. just wrote and did it. So I'm, I'm quite. That set me up for writing music. Yeah. Just <laughs> short deadlines for everything. So. So so okay. So writing it in three three months. Did you? Because I'm just really fascinated with the process of it. To be honest, um, did you find you had to just? Were you getting sort of lost in detail, and then having to just the, chop chop chop? Like how how do you, how did you set about structuring? Um, the, I think yeah. because it was like. I, I sort of began with like the sort of chronological timeline, stuck to that, then just made lots of notes and talking points for each year that I knew. Then Michael presented me with this document of gigs, and I picked out the gigs where Andy Nelly got arrested in Sao Paulo for uh, <laughs> flashing the crowd because he'd spent the whole gig being spat on, and that was his oh, thing. God. <laughs> uh, stuff like that. But I think there was a I think if I had more time, I would have probably gone down more rabbit holes to, because there was a few people I, I spent a lot of time chasing up to get interviews and stuff, and it it didn't come to anything. Like um, Laurie Barbero was going to talk, and she was really up for it because she was friends with the band, and she still is. But you know, she was uh, there a lot in the early years. But um, it was just time and people's schedules and stuff. Yeah. Um, I wanted to speak to Nigel Rolf, who did a lot of their kind of um, uh, artwork. He did the Trouble Gum sleeve and stuff, and he was going to do it. And it was just mm-hmm. everything was starting to slide into some sort of lockdown because he was going to be the, one of the last people I was going to speak to, yeah. and it just didn't happen, which was a shame. But the people I spoke to were, you know, very gracious with and generous with their time, like. Uh, like ex roadies and former yeah. band members. I did try to get five viewing, but um, and and Martin, but I just I just didn't get a response from the means I tried. So I just I th- I just think having thirty years to write about just made it easier to focus because I I didn't write it in order. I I jumped from I think it was just to keep things fresh for me. It's like not not keep it fresh it was just like I fancy writing about that album for the next few days so I'd play that album loads and just get into it and then I would jump forward to the future you know it was very back and forth but then um just went through it and uh my friend Paul sort of read through it uh and just give it a bit of a sense check just because I'd had my face against the monitor for about three months solidly. I was just like, I need someone to read through it <laughs> before I send it. And uh, the the band would read the chapters as they came in because I wanted to know that their story was how they wanted it told, you know, before I start concentrating on, you know, adding more layers to it. But um, it, it was just, I, I was very lucky to start with therapy for the fact that I had so much access to, you yeah, know, the band didn't mind if I wanted to call them up, because you know they they were 
you know, it's it's, the, it's their official story, so they were more than willing to kind of uh, give their time and stuff. Um, so I was just lucky the fact that the band were really up for just talking about whatever I needed to get. They provided me with loads of like press clippings and the document. I always talk about the document, but it made such an impact on how I could plan each year. Just because I could tell, even the less busy years, there's a few years where there was not as much touring as, say, you know, the Trouble Gummy era, but there was other stuff going on in the band that I knew which would kind of fill out the chapter so it wasn't like two two or three pages for one year. So I was just lucky. 1994. <laughs> <laughs> so we, get, we, we were talking about, um, like, Kerry picked an album and I have picked an album that was a favourite of mine. And it was actually quite difficult for the one that I've picked to to not get information about the album, but like lots of the kind of stories that we're talking about. And I think that's kind of um, reminiscent of who this band is, actually. Dummy is a debut studio album of electronic band Portshead, which was released on the 22nd of August 1994 by Go Beat Records. Um, it was an album that would go on to become a classic and to go on to win the Mercury Music Prize in 1995. And did you know they started uh, recording their first ideas for songs in Nina Cherry's kitchen? Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> but a, li- a little bit about, about Portishead. Um, so Jeff Barrow was, was kind of always quite active in the Bristol music scene in the early 90s and he got his start in, rec- in the recording industry by writing songs for Nina Cherry, hence having access to her kitchen, because they were friends, um, and doing production work for Trip Hop Pioneer's Massive Attack. Uh, Beth Gibbons had been sort of earning a living as a nightclub singer when she and Barrow met in 1991 while participating in a job training programme at the Bristol Unemployment Office. Now, there was a course involved with that. Who do you think came up with that course? I'm so never guess this. <laughs> I have no idea. Any Johnny Morris. <laughs> no, no. The course was um, for the... And I heard someone else told me about this, and I thought, that is genius. But then it got scrapped. Um, but the course was for the Enterprise Allowance, which was an initiative set up by Margaret Thatcher in the Conservative government which gave a guaranteed income of £40 per week to unemployed people who set up their own businesses. And a lot of those businesses were um, were music businesses. So, you know, creation records and, you know, a lot of people in music. I mean, it's the I think it's probably one of the okay things that, I was going to say good thing, but she put it in place and then took it away, right? You know, so, um, yeah, but I was quite surprised to read that. I was like, really? Margaret Thatcher did that? Didn't she just steal milk from children? That's what I thought, you know, and, you know, uh, closed minds and stuff. Um, anyway, um, so the pair collaborated on a number of songs and dubbed themselves Portishead after the town where Barrow grew up. But don't be misled with that, that he was a fan of the place. He wasn't. Um, but he found it as quite a sort of inspiration for the type of mood of things that he wanted to emotionally put out there musically. And actually, in an interview with NME, 
and I'll put links to all of this in the show notes, he actually um, states that the way that they wrote was he was so submerged in, in the music side of things and the melody that was written, you know, for, for the, the songs was, was beautiful and apt and all of that. But the actual words, he, he, he had no idea what, what the songs were even about lyrically, which, which is quite incredible really, isn't it? Because I just think, you know, the lyrics are so beautiful and, and wonderful, but Dummy's quite a mysterious album I think it's very Mm. unexpected and it seemed to sort of come out of nowhere and take everyone by surprise when it landed you know rock and indie was was everywhere like I was saying that you know Oasis definitely maybe you know you've got Dookie got all of this stuff going on there was a lot of dance music around and obviously Massive Attack and Tricky but I think for me Portshead I don't think I'd heard anything that sounded like that before or anything that sounded like that since I think it is a beautifully unique album you can hear influences all sorts of like jazz and and all sorts of stuff within that but I think it's a truly unique album and and it's unique also in the fact that it was quite experimental and it stole the hearts of and souls of music fans from across multiple genres it sort of bridged that it didn't matter if you were into pop or dance music or indie it was one of those those albums that transcended all of that it was just a beautiful dark disturbing uh record Portshead themselves were not really a band that were focused on image and being like huge personalities within the music industry. It was all about the music. And I think that's why I struggled to find lots of stories about them at, at that time, because it wasn't like the whole rock and roll punk stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, jumping in the back of a van sort of gigs. This was a studio production album that they put out, but it was, it was about something else other than stardom for the individuals. If that, that makes sense. So very much sort of, even though Beth is, her voice is so iconic um, on that record. You know, the, the members of the band, sort of, it was all about the music and they were sort of more in the background, if that makes sense. Or maybe that's just yeah. what I, I think. But um, So the production of the album used a number of hip-hop techniques such as sampling and scratching and loop-making. But did you know the album was not recorded digitally at all for any of, any of that, that stuff? It was still used on sort of tape. They sampled music from other records and they recorded their own original sort of music musical parts and they recorded them on vinyl before manipulating them on record decks to sample and to create that kind of vintage sound they distressed the vinyl records they did things like um putting them on the studio floor and walking over them and someone even like got a skateboard and started skateboarding over the records and then they would play them and sample the sounds and um I just don't do people I I just I just found that like such a creative and beautiful way of making music and I don't know that that people would do that now do people do that now do they you know I suppose digitally you do it with the computer now yeah exactly but still um but I I think that just makes this a really like labor of love and beautiful production the level of detail so, yeah, Dummy was released, as I said, in August 1994, and it helped cement the reputation of the 
of Bristol as the capital of trip hop, uh, a genre which was often referred to at the time as the Bristol sound. Uh, the album is beautiful, dark, luscious, and like nothing I'd heard before. It contains songs like, uh, such as, not like, definitely included these songs, Wandering Star, Glory Box, Sour Times and Numb. And the album was named 1994's Album of the Year by three separate British publications, which was Melody Maker, Mix Mag and The Face, and uh, sold 3.4 million copies. But just, just a few few little details about three of my favourite songs from the album. So Glory Box, and this is going to be quick fire quiz questions on some of these. What is a Glory Box? I mean, I, I know there's the rude version. I know there's the factual rude version. <laughs> but what is a glory box? Let's, let, do you know? Do you know? No idea. No idea. It's an Australian term for a piece of furniture where women store clothes and other items items in preparation for marriage. Wow. Pretty random. Uh, but the song's actually about um, a woman who's frustrated by love and ready to give up on her own relationship. The lines like, give me a reason to be a woman... It's all I want to be is a woman, um, a, a kind of like a plea to a man and asking to be treated with equality, respect, especially in the bedroom. So I suppose you can see the sort of connections with sure. with that. But Jeff Barrow told Pitchfork um, that the band didn't want to release that as a single. He said, we'd a row with the record company because we didn't want to release it because it felt too commercial Fine in a body of work, but not as a standalone track. We lost the argument, really, but we, you know, we bought houses after that. Fair enough. So, uh, you know, it's where it's like, you know, we lost, but actually we won. So, <laughs> yeah. So on to the next track, Sour Times. Um, Sour Times is one of those kind of, um, it's, it's the one where the, the, the video samples are from, from the film To Kill a Dead Man, whose images also make the cover of the Dummy album. I don't know if you if you knew that, that it was from a no. film. Uh, do you know anything about To Kill a Dead Man? Probably not, not if you know that. I haven't seen it. Um, it's, how to explain it, because it's a bit weird. Um, it's, it's a short film, and it's included actually on their bonus um, DVD from 2002 from their New York Live Thing that they they did so if you've got that you can see it and i'm sure you can find it online somewhere it's it's a kind of sort of um david lynch kind of film sort of film noir assassination story and that's all it doesn't make a lot of sense but when you see that <laughs> you see put the two together makes sense so uh yeah check that out if you can but um the next song uh, that I really love from that album is Biscuit. Um, and that's that's got a sort of sauntering tempo. It's got like bending pitches. It's all a bit eerie. And it's got this um, wonderful contorted sort of sample of never fall in love again that sort of comes in. And it's just really sinister. It's got this sort of beautiful heartbreaking elements to it but yeah if you haven't if people who are listening haven't heard the album which i'd be surprised and shocked if you haven't and disgusted <laughs> no judgment, no judgment disgusted here. going listen to it immediately but open a bottle of wine have some mood lightning lightning 
yeah have fun. just just you know order up from delivery a thunderstorm to be to be going on <laughs> an electrical one if you can afford it in the background and and listen listen to that album because i don't think there's there's any album fillers on it i think the whole thing from start to finish has like real strong like the way even the the track listing the way that it just takes you on an absolute journey that just you'll feel nostalgic you'll feel lonely and lost you'll have hope you'll feel creative you'll feel wonderful um but yeah it's it's probably one of my i'd say i think that album's probably my top five of all time i think yeah so uh that was that was a really brief look at Portshead's dummy i was just saying to carrie earlier that i think Everyone I knew at university had a copy of the album. If you don't, then where were you? Where were you? You were alive. Even you, Kerry, even you. How dare you not have a copy of that? (laughs) No, but seriously, um, I'm sure you've heard it now, though, right? It's an absolute, absolute classic. But, yeah, that was was, um, Dummy by Port Said. So have a listen to that. Have a listen to Dookie. And uh, if... If you're into reading, which I think you should be, um, get Simon's <laughs> Simon's book on therapy because it's it's bloody great. But we're we're going to end off and we're just going to have a little brief chat again with Simon um, because it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. So thank you for thank you. for joining us. Yeah, thank us. you very much. Um, I'd say Pleasure. outside of therapy, who yeah. um, outside your therapy group and the band, um, what would you say? Are your top five albums that you'd take to the grave? Right. Here we go. He's are. ready. He's prepared. Look at him. He's on it. So I mentioned Iron Maiden. Uh, this is Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. This is, came out 88. I was 12. I saw them on Top of the Pops and it, it, I wouldn't be here doing music stuff and chatting on podcasts about music if, if it wasn't for this album. There's a yeah. There's a picture of me around that time with an Iron Maiden t-shirt on. Oh, and uh, and your baby face. Yeah, you know, <laughs> wearing sort of uh, Mike Reed glasses, and uh, I look so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, this this is the original record I bought when I was. It, I must have been with birthday money after ten twelve. So there's that Amazing. one there. Next one is uh, and Justice for All by Metallica. Uh, the f- released the same year. Yeah. Um. So sort of, I remember buying this on uh, bonfire night after school. I used to, I used to get the uh it'd be the five three three to Newcastle and go to Windows uh, record shop. Yeah. And um, I remember buying it and not going to any bonfire displays to just listen to this album <laughs> sitting on the stairs, <laughs> and uh, the fireworks would kind of uh, complement the. The riffs in the background so yeah that's that is that is a good that is a good album yeah yeah um it's i i play i I literally play it once a week i think still still yeah it's i love it uh next we've got rock from the crypt scream dracula scream classic Uh, i've got a rock from the crypt tattoo on my wrist Uh, that that's hardcore but you're 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 a fan that's yeah. yeah Uh, so it's just to show my allegiance to the band. But um, yeah, this came out when I was in um, second year at university, and uh, I think it was 
yeah, I talked earlier about my dad's records and stuff, and there's a bit of a 50s thing in here, and there's a bit of stacks and sort of a Motown feel to it, and there's punk bits, and it's just a flawless album, I think. Uh, and again, it's it's one of those albums I play regularly, but I, I mean, I'd pick most of Rock from the Crypt stuff. Yeah. But there's only so much room in a coffin, so <laughs> I'm going to stick to five. Uh, the next one is a band called Curb Dog, who are from Kilkenny. Mm-hmm. Um, this came out in 96. Uh, these were the first band I ever interviewed for this uh, university magazine, and I was sent a free copy of the, the a CD of the album, and uh, I played it to death then, and I still do now, and uh, it's getting a reissue because uh, this was worth 300 on eBay. Up until recently, wow. Jesus. But I think uh, a reissue is going to dent the uh, mm. the value. But um, it's uh, yeah, it's brilliant, and I, I've I've got to know the band like therapy over the years, and have uh, the architects of many a bad hangover. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so that's Curb Dogs on the turn. Um, me and my friend John have arguments because they've got two studio albums out, and uh, we argue about. He prefers the first album, which is heavier and a bit more metal. But I, I think there's more like classic songs on that album, yeah. and uh, um, it's it's a mystery why they never got huge off the back yeah. of that. But I think it was just I think the, the label released it too late, and it and they got swallowed up by the the whole yeah. Britpop thing. Yeah, and there's finally, a lot of t- there's a lot of timing involved in these things, right? Yeah, yeah I think the album was done for a year, and it just didn't get released in time. Uh, and it's a sad story, but it's it's much beloved by anyone. Like Frank Turner and Simon from Biffy Claro both sing its praises yeah. regularly. Uh, final album. There's lots of albums I'd take uh, for various reasons, but I'm going to pick the Jesus Lizard uh, down. Uh, say a lot of these albums are from the first couple of years at uni. Uh, um, yeah, I saw these on the bill at Reading on the day they played uh, with Therapy with Second Top and... Um, they're just saying about the bass playing and David Yao's vocals um, mm. that just transcend most most bands I think it, yeah. just, it shouldn't work but it does and uh, I mean I, I think I prefer the uh, Liar album but um, because this is the first one I bought yeah. on CD at the time um, it's it's got a lot of memories attached to it and uh, to announce the book, I got uh, David Yao to do a cameo video message yeah. to say that the book was coming out, and he he did it, and uh, that that was the best part of the the book re- release week because uh, <laughs> it it tied in Jesus Lizard and Therapy, and uh, it was it's you can still see it on my Twitter feed somewhere, oh. but he was, he was very gracious in doing it, and because he he did because. Um, they toured together in the US around that time and he said he had a lot of fun memories and the band adore the Jesus Lizard so it was a bit of a treat for them to see him publicising their book that's, oh, that's, so, that's so cool that is really cool and what what a great set of records Kerry what Thank would you, you bring and uh, you've not. No, I know. You've I not given me time to prepare for no, this no I know so I'm putting you on the spot the top of my head. I'm so bad at picking like favourites of anything I'm refusing to answer. What was the first word that came to your head? Well, the first thing that came into my head was the Sleater Kinney album, Dig Me Out, because I'm going to talk about that on the Get In Her Ears thing. 
That's all you've got for me. So no, I pre- fair I enough. That one prepped in my head. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I did put you on the spot. I thought you might have, like, I don't know, no. come up with with some absolute gems I that I could I laugh perform, at you. I don't, I don't right. perform on command for you. Oh, what a shame! What a shame! <laughs> My uh, subtle hypnosis during these video podcasts uh, isn't working not, on you. Not working. <laughs> and when I say suppose. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that's that's the title of this episode. When I say suppose, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's sorted. Okay, we've, I've been Angela and Kerry's been Paula. Um, <laughs> <laughs> As I am on... Yeah, it's just the same person who just puts on different voices. There's only two people in Bug Eye, or is there? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but thank you so much to everyone that has been tuning in week after week for the show and sending us so many lovely messages. Um, If you do have a story or new music that you would like us to play or talk about, do email us at rockpoprambles at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Bug Eye Band and on Facebook and Instagram as Bug Eye Music. So do get in touch with us if you if you want to. We do actually reply. I know it's sometimes a little bit slow, but um, I promise <laughs> to get a bit better at that. But no, we do appreciate everything that, that people have been saying about the show. And, and all of our guests and this week's guest has been absolutely marvellous. It's been Simon Young. Um, talking talking about his his book this is a standout one for the year it's called so much for the 30 year plan and you said that there's some signed copies that are available on until on therapy site until the end of october so yeah. if you're interested in getting a copy then you better move your ass and get over there and get one before they're they're all gone so uh yeah thanks simon for joining the show thanks for having me it's been good thanks kerry for joining the show I thought you were going to say thanks, Kerry, for being Paula. No, I'm being nice and saying thanks, <laughs> Kerry, because I know you're feeling a little bit poorly. I am. It's not COVID, though. It's not COVID, though. That's what she keeps saying. <laughs> She's in denial. But no, um, but thank you, Kerry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. thank, thank, you. thank you, Angela. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I think that's it for the show. Over and out.